Hey guys, this is Cynthia Griffin with FemFrat, and I hope that you are all staying warm during this polar vortex. I know here in Wisconsin it's really cold. It's about negative 20 where I am right now. And I figured this would be a good time to go over some hypothermic cardiac arrest info. There's a lot of things that have changed over the last couple years with hypothermic cardiac arrest, especially with um, using ECMO and cardiopulmonary bypass and how we treat patients in the field. And I thought maybe we could go over this quickly, being that it's so cold and things have changed and we're running into more of these patients every day. So in normal conditions, the human body is about 37 degrees Celsius or 98.6 Fahrenheit, and it's our hypothalamus that regulates the autonomic reflexes in our body that'll increase our temperature by shivering, and they'll also peripherally vasoconstrict, right, to try to get blood warm into the core. With shivering, that's going to increase our metabolism directly by, you know, our muscles shaking, and then indirectly by increasing ventilation and cardiac output. Shivering, you know, has been mentioned as like the most effective method of rewarming and so patients who are cold stressed or even mildly hypothermic you want them to shiver right cold stress is usually someone who's cold and shivering but not really hypothermic in the fact that they're fully alert and fully functionally these patients shivering can max out at about 32 degrees celsius or 89.6 right then it starts to decrease and shivering is usually going to stop around 30 degrees Celsius or 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, shivering usually can increase the core body temperature by 1 to 3 degrees Celsius per hour, as long as these patients have calories for it and have the glucose reserves. So giving somebody a warm hot cocoa isn't really going to warm up their temperature very much, but the calories from that hot cocoa is really going to help them so that they can continue to shiver and warm their own body. Now, there's different thresholds for what we look at for hypothermia. There's usually mild, moderate, and severe, and it's usually classified by the body's ability to thermoregulate, and there's certain numbers. So mild's 32 to 35 degrees centigrade, or uh, 89.6 to 95. Moderate is anywhere between 32 to 28 degrees Celsius, so 82.4 to 89.6, and then severe is classified as anything less than 28 degrees Celsius or less than 82.4 in Fahrenheit. Now, to be straight up, you're not going to be able to get a temperature in the field. It's just too difficult to get. Usually what we're looking for is core body temperature. We want to know actually what the heart temperature is. And the best way to do that, at least in the hospital, is to get an esophageal temperature that's next to the right atria. You're not going to get that in the field. Getting a rectal or a bladder temperature is a little closer, but we're definitely not going to get that in the field either. You can also go for axillary. That might be close, but if the body's cold and the skin's cold, you're not going to get a very good temperature. A lot of thermometers also don't go as low as what we need. Um, in order to check a patient's temperature who's hypothermic. So, in all actuality, what we're going to have to go off is clinical signs from our patient. So, when we're looking at mild hypothermia, those patients are going to be alert, they're going to be shivering, they're not going to be functioning completely normally, but they're going to be conscious, right? And they can probably move around. So, that's going to be like hypothermia stage one. We're going to want to treat these patients pat with passive rewarming, right? So you're going to want to remove their wet clothes. Um, usually they say kind of cut them off rather than pull them off. But you only want to do this if they're in a warm environment. It's not windy. It's not super cold. You'll wrap them up in some warm blankets. Give them something sweet to drink. 
give them some extra clothing, blankets, quilts, things like that. Then we can move on to like the moderate hypothermia. And that's going to be a patient who is alert, but they're starting to get a decreased level of consciousness. This is known as like hypothermia stage two or three. So conscious or unconscious, but probably not shivering anymore. These patients are going to need rewarming that's active and external. So heating pads or warm water bottles. And you never want to put these directly on the skin because you don't want to have burns. This is where we're going to use our bear huggers and our forced air rewarming. We can use radiant heat warmers, heat packs. Even warmed IV fluids could be used in patients at this point. And those are usually at like 40 degrees Celsius. These patients will need a cardiac monitor and you want to really avoid moving them around or jostling them because you don't want to trigger an arrhythmia especially in these types of patients. And then we look at the more like severe hypothermic patients, and these are the ones who are gonna be unconscious and not shivering. Now for these patients, if they've coded, the goal is gonna be to get them to an ECMO center or somewhere where they can be put on ECMO, so extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. That's been shown to reduce mortality by anywhere from 40 to 90%, and it's the preferred rewarming method that's available. Now for these severely hypothermic patients, there's some studies that's out there that are saying that given that hypothermia can help the brain, it would make sense to keep the brain cool. So there's some arguments to be made about rewarming these patients, specifically their brain, before adequate circulation is restored. They think that it might even worsen outcomes. So really the goal would be to prevent further heat loss during transport and to keep that brain cool. So you're gonna try to passively warm other parts of the body and keep the brain cool. Now, ways that we're gonna warm up these patients, so let's say they're not super, super hypothermic, using blankets, forced warm air, minimally invasive internal rewarming fluids like IV fluids is gonna be the way to go until you can allow more rewarming with ECMO. You could try extra clothing or blankets, quilts, sleeping bags. Insulating pads, definitely if you're out in the wilderness environment, you want to keep some kind of area between the patient and the ground, right? Because we want to prevent large conductive heat loss from that ground. And then you want to think about adding a vapor barrier, which is basically some windproof or waterproof barrier that protects against heat loss from evaporation or convection. Things with like bubble wrap or sheets of plastic, you know, those reflective like space blankets that we always have. Even garbage bags, just make sure that you cut a hole for the face. You usually want to paste that vapor barrier as the outside most layer of all the insulation. And if you don't have a vapor barrier, you can even use more insulation for your patients. A lot of studies recommend cutting clothing off rather than pulling it off, so you minimize jarring of your patient. And then you always want to make sure to insulate around the head and neck, but you don't want to interfere with their breathing. Now, patients who are moderate to severely hypothermic who you're going to have to fly out to get to an ECMO center. It's always important to have that vapor barrier and to keep them covered for when the helicopter's landing because when you rendezvous with the helicopter you don't want the downwash from the helicopter to have a lot of conductive heat loss for your patients. Now I've always joked around with my crews and said well if we get stuck somewhere we'll just have to all get naked and hang out in a sleeping bag. Now, body-to-body rewarming of shivering persons, like in a sleeping bag, will decrease shivering, but it's been shown to not really increase the rate of rewarming. So it might make your patients more comfortable. It might make y'all a lot closer, but you shouldn't do this if it's going to delay transport. Also, you don't want to put a hypothermic just in a shower or bath because that's going to lead to major vasodilation of the skin, and that can lead to an afterdrop with lower BPs and a potential for cardiac collapse. Definitely don't want that to happen.
Now in residency, we always talked about distal limb rewarming. I don't really know if you can use this in the field as much, but it could be safe in mildly hypothermic patients for their arms and legs, at least to the knees and elbows, to be warmed to 42 to 45 degrees centigrade, like in a warm bath, just for that part. The idea is that this opens AV and astomosis in the hands and feet, and that maybe that warm blood can then return to the heart. Now in the field, what you're gonna wanna do is warm your ambulance up. Some studies recommend anywhere from 28 degrees Celsius, which is 82.4 <laughs> Fahrenheit. That's pretty hot for inside of an ambulance, but you know, maybe somewhere around 75. It'll be warm, but that's a good compromise. One other thing to really keep in mind is that hypothermic patients can also be trauma patients. And if they're hypothermic and they're cold, you're increasing the risk of that lethal triad, the acidosis, coagulopathy, and hypothermia. And severely injured patients are usually unable to shiver and they can become hypothermic even quicker in colder climates. Now, a lot of the evidence that I've been researching, or at least looking up, is mostly case reports and expert opinion. So make sure that you always discuss this with your OMD, your medical directors, and with the hospitals that you're working at. It's important to know if they have ECMO, if they have maybe a CT surgeon that can cannulate these patients, or if these patients need to be transferred somewhere else. Because you can always rendezvous with a helicopter and get them to a university or a tertiary care center. Now, indications for CPR in patients who have arrested due to hypothermia or accidental hypothermia, usually want to feel for a carotid pulse for about a minute. It's going to be hard to do because it's cold. Pulses can be slow. Patients can be breathing very slowly, and it could be faint. And so instead of that whole 10 seconds from before, we feel for about a minute. There have been some warnings in books about inappropriate administration of chest compressions and attempts to augment cardiac output and how this could precipitate VFib. But if you're not feeling a pulse after a minute, you're really going to need to start compressions for these patients. In the pre-hospital environment, you can't always be sure which victims of hypothermic cardiac arrest are going to survive resuscitation attempts. So it's always recommended to start BLS and then move for some ALS efforts until reaching a hospital that's either got ECMO or has rewarming preparedness or that clinical experience. So now let's discuss something called core temperature afterdrop. This is a concept where once a patient's been removed from the cold environment, core cooling can continue second to conductive heat loss from that warm core to the cool peripheral tissues, causing an increase of cooling in the blood that returns to central circulation. And conductive cooling also increases with movement of rewarming of the extremities. This results in an increased rate of blood flow to the periphery, which means increased peripheral blood flow, which leads to increased cool blood going to the central blood, which actually decreases the core temperature and increases the workload of the heart. All in all, you just don't want to jostle these patients much. And this whole afterdrop can actually drop patients anywhere from 5 to 6 degrees centigrade, which is a lot. And that's been reported even in pre-hospital data. This is why when we have these hypothermic patients who are no longer shivering and slightly confused, we want to avoid having them do any kind of physical effort, and we want them to stay alert. So we want to do all the moving for them. You don't want to just get them up and get them walking around. Movement and rewarming of extremities should be avoided to prevent this increased cool blood flow going back to the core because the last thing we want is to make them even colder. So definitely very careful handling and avoidance of rough movement is mandatory for these patients. Some studies recommend transporting patients supine and avoiding positioning them because you don't want to have major changes in their venous return. 
Now, as for patients who need to go to an ECMO center and patients that are appropriate for ECMO, let's go over that. Patients who need transport to an ECMO center would include patients who are at high risk for imminent cardiac arrest. So these are patients with a temperature that's less than 28 degrees centigrade or 82.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Patients who have ventricular arrhythmias or who have a systolic BP less than 90 or patients who even already arrested. These are gonna be patients who are no longer shivering and who are slightly altered. Now a crucial factor in all hypothermic cases is gonna be whether there was critical brain hypoxia they occurred prior before the brain cooling took place in this patient. Early hypothermia is an important reason why survival without neurologic damage actually is possible in some patients. There's instances of miraculous survival with good recovery even after submersion has occurred, and mostly these are in small children who were submerged in icy water who rapidly became hypothermic prior to their hypoxia. And there's lots of reasons why we hear about this more in children than adults. Kids usually cool more rapidly than adults in cold water, and infants and children have an insufficient shivering mechanism, so they get colder faster. They have less sub-Q fat, and they have a higher surface area to body weight ratio. You know, aspiration in very cold water occurs in children, and their small bodies are believed to instantly cool the heart and blood in the carotid arteries, and therefore their brain, prior to them getting hypoxic. Now, unfortunately, it's a little bit different in adults, and adults can cool rapidly, but it's important to think about, was it hypoxia that started before the hypothermia, or was it the hypothermia before the hypoxia? Usually, when it's patients who are cold before they are hypoxic, they usually have better outcomes. For this reason, when there's an avalanche victim and their mouth or their airway is packed with ice and snow, the thought is that they were probably more hypoxic prior to their hypothermia, and they'll probably not have a good outcome. Now, when we have these patients and we get on scene, you always want to allow the hypothermic patient who's either laying or sitting to stay that way, and you don't want them to stand up right away. Getting them to stand up or walk would increase blood flow to the legs, worsening after drop, and increasing the risk of hypotension. You want to try to insulate them, give them calories, maybe slowly get them to sit and then stand but this would be for the mildly hypothermic patient. So let's talk about breathing stuff. So when you have your patient who is hypothermic, tidal volumes, respiratory rate, pulmonary compliance, and thoracic elasticity are all decreased. At about less than 30 degrees centigrade or 86 degrees Fahrenheit, respiratory rates can be as slow as five beats per minute. Patients will have irregular respiratory patterns and this can easily be mistaken for agonal breathing. That could lead to premature CPR. Usually the cough reflex at this point is obtunded in patients and ciliary activity is reduced and secretions are more viscous. These patients are likely to have increase in chest infections. And like I mentioned previously, for hypothermic drowning or submersion patients, submersive patients are usually underwater and they suffer a hypoxic cardiac arrest before they're cooling. Now, immersion patients, these are patients who are immersed in the water and they're usually breathing oxygen prior to their cooling. These patients are going to have a better outcome. And then for the avalanche victims, if there's snow and ice in the mouth, then hypoxia is more likely. Aggressive resuscitative efforts are usually targeted more towards the hypothermic patient, and these might be less successful if the patient was hypoxic 
before they were hypothermic. One thing that we can do is we can also supply heated humidified O2 to prevent any respiratory heat loss, although this has very little heat content in itself. If your patient's intubated or has a superglottic airway in place, you always want to use your end tidal CO2, and you might want to ventilate a little bit slower than usual. It'll be hard to get a good pulse ox on these patients, and remember that if you're ever at a higher elevation, you always just want to use O2. Now, when intubating these patients, you got to be aware that there could also be cold-induced trismus. So this is where the patient's going to have lockjaw, and if trismus is present, then laryngoscopy can be very difficult, and you might just have to place a superglottic airway. That might be a better option, but it might be to the point where it's even difficult to do this, and therefore you need to be ready to crike these patients. Not only that, but they could be resistant to neurobuscular blockade as well, making both intubation and supraglottic airway passage difficult. Once these patients are intubated or they have an ET tube in place, you don't want to overinflate the ET tube cuff with cold air, because as the patient warms up, this could lead to overinflation of that cuff and rupture. Just know that anesthetic and neuromuscular blocking agents are likely to be ineffective below 30 degrees centigrade or 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Not only that, but once they do start to work, their metabolism will most likely be decreased, and they might have prolonged effects with these agents, which will become effective as the patient rewarms. So there's a lot to think about when it comes to breathing with our hypothermic patients. Circulation-wise, these patients are always going to be vasoconstricted, right? And this can actually be blocked by alcohol, and this is why those drunk patients always end up being hypothermic, because vasoconstriction is also going to fail at less than 24 degrees centigrade or 75.2 degrees Fahrenheit. These patients become poikilothermic, which means that their temperature is more dependent on the ambient temperature. Any hypothermic patient that you're treating needs to be gently placed on the monitor and watched very closely. Initial tachycardia will probably be what you see due to patients shivering, but this will subside as temperatures start to drop. And then patients will have decrease in spontaneous depolarization of pacemaker cells, which could lead to a linear fall in their pulse rate, anywhere to about 50%. And this is usually seen around 28 degrees Celsius or 82.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Once these patients start to have a drop in their pulse rate and they're bradycardic, they're usually atropine unresponsive. Now, if you have a patient who has a relative tachycardia that's inconsistent with the temperature, that means something else might be going on. So think about trauma or looking for other causes of their tachycardia. Now, at less than 32 degrees Celsius or 89.6 degrees Fahrenheit, patients are going to have some sinus bradycardia and prolonged QT. They could have J waves, right? or Osborne waves. These aren't pathognomonic for hypothermia alone, but if you see them, they're usually best seen in leads 1 and V6. And then always look out for V-fib, because that's going to be likely once you get less than 28 degrees Celsius or 82.4 degrees Fahrenheit. But really, any EKG rhythm is going to be possible. So that's why you want to continuously monitor these patients and obtain a 12 lead. you got to be prepared for any rhythm that could come up, and these patients could also be resistant to any kind of treatment, especially as the heart starts to warm up. So I would have pads in place on these patients immediately. For patients who are hypothermic, their cardiac output's going to fall to 45% at about 25 degrees Celsius or 77 degrees Fahrenheit. So expect there to be some hypotension. You got to have IV access for these patients and administer fluids. Hypovolemia can actually worsen frostbite as well too, so you want to make sure that they're hydrated well. These patients might also have a cold diuresis, which would be due to relative central hypervolemia due to the peripheral vasoconstriction, and they'll have reduced antidiuretic hormone release, and they'll be resistant to its effects. 
alcohol is also going to lead to even more diuresis. So for these severely hypothermic patients, they're going to be dehydrated. Oh, I can't even speak. Dehydrated. You want to give them normal saline and know that as they're rewarming, they're going to start opening up that peripheral circulation, which could lead to a rapid drop in their blood pressure. So you want to continuously monitor that blood pressure. And if you could put an art line, then that would totally be ideal. If you're going to give these patients LR, just know that the liver can't metabolize lactate at really cold temperatures. So some studies actually recommend that you should avoid LR, but rather give normal saline and give warmed IV fluids anywhere from 40 to 42 degrees centigrade, which is up to 107 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, they say that you should also give a bunch of fluid boluses, especially if you're out in the field, because you don't want the fluid in those lines to get frozen and cold. For these patients too, their GFR, so their glomerular filtration rate, is going to drop, especially as their cardiac output is dropping, and so that's going to decrease renal blood flow. And at low temperatures, tubular capacity for hydrogen ion secretion is reduced. So there's going to be a renal component to acidosis for these patients. Their hematocrit's probably going to go up 2% for every 1 degree decline in temperature. So if you have a patient and you're able to get labs, or let's say you have an ISTAT or an EPOC and they have a normal hematocrit, then that's going to be, and, and they're really cold, then they might have some kind of pre-existing anemia, or they could have some kind of blood loss. Platelet function is also going to be impaired, and the coagulation enzyme activity is going to go down, especially with temperatures less than 33 degrees Celsius or 91.4 degrees Fahrenheit, and coagulopathy is going to significantly increase their mortality in these patients, especially those with trauma. So always make sure that you're stopping the bleed and consider blood products. Now, after rewarming your patients, their MAP, contractility, and cardiac output are decreased, especially if alcohol was on board prior to cooling. You're gonna have to expect more prolonged depression or cardiac function after rewarming. Now, according to the Recess Crisis Manual, the one by Doug Brown and Scott Weingart, ACLS-wise, they're saying that if these patients have coded, you're going to want to give either three doses of ACLS meds and defibrillation. You can reattempt defibrillation once their temperatures come up from 28 degrees Celsius or 82.4, whether there's a change in the rhythm or after every two degree increase in a core body temperature. Usually above 30 degrees centigrade or 86 degrees Fahrenheit, that's when you can re-implement regular ACLS meds. Now, if your patient's over 32 degrees centigrade or 89.6 Fahrenheit and these patients are still in cardiac arrest, that's when you might want to start consider termination. Now, for these patients who are coded, you're going to want to feel that pulse for a minute, which I mentioned before. Put them on end tidal, and if there's a lack of a waveform, they're most likely in cardiac arrest. You can still use an AED if you're a BLS crew, and if their temp is anywhere from 20 degrees Celsius to 28 or 68 Fahrenheit to 82, then you're wanna, gonna wanna perform CPR for at least five minutes and limit your interruptions to no greater than five minutes. Ideally, you'd have a Lucas device or some kind of external uh, compression device on these patients. Now, there are studies that have shown that patients less than even 26 degrees Celsius, which is 78.8 Fahrenheit, they have been successfully resuscitated. Usually they're recommending either a single shock at maximum power or a total of at least three shocks and not more than that. You can wait until the patient's one degree higher for the next shock or above 30 degrees Celsius to use those ACLS recommendations. Try to obtain IV access on these patients too and if you can't get it, then just go for the IO. Don't ever forget to check glucose in these patients as well. That's my D for disability. If you're unable to get a glucose because it's too cold or perhaps the environment's too cold and the monitor won't work and the patient's altered and hypothermic, 
then go ahead and give either half an amp or an amp of D50. Because hyperglycemias is not known to have an adverse effects on hypothermic patients. And if they're hyperglycemic, let's say you're able to get a really high blood sugar, then just know insulin's probably not going to work once you're less than 30 degrees centigrade or 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Hyperglycemia and having a high blood sugar is actually more common due to catecholamine-induced glycogenolysis and decreased insulin release and inhibition to insulin transport in these patients. So just always make sure you check that blood sugar and if it's high, know that they're even going to be further diuresed and they're going to need more fluids. Disability-wise, reflexes can become increasingly sluggish as your body temperature goes down and they usually actually become absent once you get to 28 degrees Celsius or 82 Fahrenheit. Pupils can become dilated and unreactive to light which makes it harder to diagnose death in these patients. And even like EEGs and like brain stimulation stuff shows burst suppression at 22 degrees centigrade, and it can even become isoelectric. Brain oxygen consumption starts to decrease by about 6% per one degree Celsius, fall in the core temperature, and reaches about 16% at 15 degrees Celsius or 59 Fahrenheit. So this actually improves the brain's tolerance to low or no flow states. And at 18 degrees Celsius or 64.4 degrees Fahrenheit, the brain tolerates cardiac arrest for up to 10 times longer than it would in a patient who's normothermic. So let's talk about some details for critical care in hypothermic patients. So for every one degree Celsius of hypothermia, metabolic demand is going to go down by 6%. So these patients can tolerate cardiac arrest 10 times longer than someone who's normothermic at 37 degrees Celsius or 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Transferring these patients to an ECMO center can be life-saving, but only when it's appropriate patients who haven't had major trauma or asphyxia that didn't precede the hypothermia. So reasons to not resuscitate these cold patients would be things like obvious signs of irreversible death, like truncal transection, right? Once you're cut in half, you're not going to be put together. Whether you're decapitated, not going to attach that head back on, or if there's a major loss of brain matter. Patients who are also very frigid and you're unable to even and compress the chest, those patients wouldn't be appropriate to be resuscitated. Or avalanche victims who've been in that avalanche or buried for more than 60 minutes with snow and ice in the airway. Those would be patients that you would not want to resuscitate. Now lab-wise, what we use in the ED is usually potassium markers, right? And sometimes you can get these with an EPOC or ISTAT, but hypokalemia is usually common and severe high initial potassiums is actually a marker poor prognosis but normal potassiums actually don't predict survival so in potassiums greater than 12 these patients have never ever been resuscitated it's an indicator that the brain and heart hypoxia secondary to cell lysis has occurred and so these patients usually have very poor outcomes. You can use this as a decision tool to stop. At least that's what we use in the hospital. The highest potassium ever recorded in a patient who was saved was 11.8 and that was in a 30 31 month old child. In labs for these patients, know that their lactic acid production is going to be super high because they're going to be shivering and they're going to have reduced tissue perfusion. Things to think about with meds, there was actually something I read about ketamine for these patients, that ketamine's sympathomimetic effects could actually theoretically cause problems for an irritable hypothermic heart. So hyperthermia will reduce systemic clearance of CYP450 metabolized drugs, things like ketamine and propofol. So if we are using ketamine and propofol, we could actually lead to having unanticipated toxicities. So something just to keep in mind, right? Now, less than 32 degrees Celsius 
our patients are going to have increased sensitivity to non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. Multiple trauma and other comorbidities, alcohol intoxication, analgesia or sedation can actually hasten cooling by impairing central and peripheral thermoregulation, so the whole shivering and vasoconstriction. So we just have to know how our sedation and our analgesia is going to affect our patients that we're trying to care for. Now, critical care-wise, you might have to transport a patient who's getting bladder lavage. This is usually done with a three-way Foley with 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit saline. These patients usually get about two to four liters infused into their bladder by gravity, and then you always have to confirm that the volume going in is the volume going out. Now there can also be chest lavage where chest tubes have been placed and that same warm fluid is being infused into the chest and then taken out as well. It just might be something that you see in transport. It's rare, but it has happened and it is a way of rewarming patients until they can get to ECMO. So I kind of covered a lot maybe a little more than I was expecting. I just kind of started talking and kept going. But in summary, here are the main things. When you get to your patient who's hyperthermic, who's cold, if they're not confused, maybe they're acting a little funny, but they're at least shivering and they're making sense, don't allow them to get up quickly. Try to keep them warm. Try to keep them out of the cold environment. Give them something warm. Give them some calories and slowly move them in order to get them transported. If these patients are altered, not shivering as much, then you're gonna need to do more stuff. You're gonna have to do some external rewarming. You're gonna have to be really careful how you move them. Don't change their position a lot. Transport them supine. Maybe a little elevated, but not much get an IV, put them on the monitor, start some external cooling, whether it's with a bear hugger, keep their head cool, but keep them insulated and prepare yourself for arrhythmias. And if you have warm saline, go ahead and give them that. Now, if your patients are obtunded or they're unconscious, You've got to be really careful to not jostle those patients. You have to cut their clothing off. Don't pull it off. You don't want to rub their skin off. You want to leave most of the warming to the outside hospital. Try to get them to an ECMO center or somewhere that can place them on ECMO so that they can be warmed in that method. And if your patient has arrested, just know that you're going to be limited in what you do ACLS-wise. So it is appropriate. You can give a dose of epi if that's in your protocol. You can defibrillate them once up to three times. Usually a lot of what the studies are saying is to defibrillate once at the highest amount and then wait for warming in order to defibrillate again. I've had patients who've been in cardiac arrest and instead of giving epi every three to five, I probably gave it every 10 minutes and did it as their temperature was going up because I didn't want them to suddenly get this huge toxic load. Everyone's going to do it a little bit differently based on what patients they have. I think that the key that I probably didn't stress enough is that these patients need to go to a center where they can be put on ECMO because that's going to be the best way to rewarm them, either ECMO or cardiopulmonary bypass. Not every hospital has that. So just make sure that you know what hospitals in your area has that. And if they don't have that, then know how to rendezvous with a helicopter that can get that patient to a rewarming center. The last couple of cases that I have heard of that have been hypothermic and the last few that I have had, we actually got vitals back, got some perfusing rhythms, but the patients had been hypoxic too long before their event and they were not resuscitated fully or they were brain dead. 
these patients can be resuscitated. There are tons of Norwegian studies that show that cool patients can be warmed appropriately and actually have good outcomes. There's a lot of data out there. I will put some studies in the show notes that you guys can read and you'll be amazed at some of the stuff that you see. The main things are that if your patient's coding, if you're bringing them to the hospital, you keep them, you keep the brain cool, basically. You can try to externally warm the rest of them. Just let the hospital know you're coming so that they can start to get ECMO ready or cardiopulmonary bypass or transport. Don't forget to always look for trauma. Know that you can't really call these patients in the field because you can't go off of things like dilated pupils or, you know, no response because they're cold, they're hypothermic. You can't go off those regular signs of death. I don't know if the old adage of you're not dead until you're warm and dead is completely true. I mean, if your body's cut in half and you're cold, you're dead. I think it's a good idea to go over with your crews and your medical director cases and just tabletop studies of what you're going to do when you have that hypothermic patient. Because I'm telling you, once you get them, it's hard to think about it and do it at the same time. But if you've practiced it, it's a lot easier. Know what your local hospitals have to offer. Know what kind of helicopter you can rendezvous with. Know how to get them to the tertiary care center. And know that Sometimes these patients can look dead, but they can reanimate and they can survive and they can actually have good outcomes. So don't get trapped in the polar vortex. Grab yourself a hottie toddy and study up on some hypothermia and FOMED. See you guys next time.